Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Bill Weil. Now, Bill is an interesting one because he had chapter one of his career, was an extremely successful technologist where he was chief architect and then CTO of Akamai Technologies. Then he was the head of sustainability, first at Google, where he spent six years as the green energy czar, and then as director of sustainability at Facebook, where he focused on energy efficiency initiatives. We talked about a number of things in this episode, including Bill's story and his transition from focusing on technology to focusing on climate change. We talked about the history of corporate sustainability and the different approaches that Google takes versus Facebook, as well as other brands that are out there trying to head down a similar path. We also talked about where Bill finds himself today as he's looking at the climate crisis and trying to figure out where he can have an even bigger impact going forward, as well as some of the things that he's most excited about. I thought Bill was a great guest. I learned a ton, and I think you will as well. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here and to have a chat with you. So should we pretend like this is our first take? <laughs> well, let's just keep our fingers crossed that we don't have technical difficulties this time. After having spent most of my career in, in computer science and the tech industry, I am regularly feel like I need to apologize for what we have inflicted on people. So my apologies. Yes, it's all your fault that I brought the equipment to your house and, and lost the episode in between getting it off the machine and onto my my MacBook. But as we discussed, we had a good chat. We got to know each other and we still have a lot of ground left to cover. So good for listeners, but honestly, just good to to have another chat with you since you're an interesting guy that I have a lot to learn from. Well, and ditto. I feel the same way. So for starters, Bill, there's so many different places we could go with this discussion, but I feel like from our prior discussion, there's been some different chapters to your career. There was the technical career, which was a, a very successful one. And, and then uh, more recently, there was a sustainability career and a very successful one. And now it sounds like you're maybe switching gears and looking to head down a similar path to me, but from a very different place. Yeah, absolutely. I spent first 20 years of my career essentially in technology, first in academia, teaching computer science at MIT, and then out here in California, First at an industrial research lab and then at Akamai Technologies, which is an MIT offshoot, but they opened an office out here, which, and I joined shortly after that. And then in 2004, decided that I was increasingly freaked out about climate change, having been interested in environmental issues my whole life, and decided to see if I could do something professionally about it. And that's what prompted a really major career shift. Which started, I mean, 2005, I spent a lot of time kind of on the journey you're on right now, talking to people, learning, networking, trying to figure out what could I do, particularly without going back to school. That was not on my agenda. And landed a job at Google in early 2006 to help them figure out what they were going to do about climate. That was a good time to land a job at Google. It was not bad. I mean, I've been very lucky, I would say, throughout my career, including jobs at Google and then Facebook, doing really, really meaningful work that fed my soul and getting paid reasonably well for it, certainly better than nonprofit salaries. And I'm not complaining about that. 
I know you've only been head of sustainability in two companies now, Google and Facebook, but I guess given that it's been more than one and you've probably gotten exposure to a bunch of other sustainability work that other companies are doing outside of Facebook and Google, do you find that the role of sustainability is pretty well-defined and or consistent across organizations, or is it all over the map? Somewhere in between. I mean, there is a lot of variability. That wasn't a choice. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Number three. <laughs> There's a lot of variability across companies. I think there is a lot of commonality, but there are differences from company to company in terms of what their goals are and what they're trying to achieve by doing sustainability work. And there are differences in how they go about it, partly based on the kinds of people they hire, partly based on where the sustainability team is housed within the company. I think the goal of most sustainability teams is ultimately to embed sustainability and more sustainable thinking and approaches to things in the day-to-day operations of the company, in all of the functional operating groups of the company. And I think that holds pretty much everywhere. But how you go about that and what you focus on depends a lot on who you report to and what their priorities are. And so if you report to marketing, you're going to be driven a lot by the external perception of the company and what you can do to improve the brand and help market products and maybe help the company develop products that are more sustainable and so on. And if you report to public policy or risk management, you're going to have a very different frame that you start from. If you're in the engineering and operations part of the company, which is where I was in both Google and Facebook, it's going to be less about the reputation of the company and more about what can we do to really change the way the company works and in the process help make the world a better place. Not that reputation doesn't still factor into it, but it's sort of a question of what do you start with? And I always tried to start with what can we do that would have real impact? And if we can do good stuff that has impact, we'll have good stories to tell. And with the benefit of hindsight, what are some things that were common between the sustainability strategies of Google and Facebook? And what are some of the areas of difference as well? Google at the time I joined had crazy big ambitions around the impact it wanted to have on the world and on the planet. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google, really, I think they both felt very passionately about the environment broadly and especially about climate change. And so that was why back in 2005, they and a couple other senior people were looking to hire someone to figure out what they were going to do on climate. I don't think there were any other, certainly not, there weren't any other tech companies that were doing that. And it was lucky for me, I was in the right place at the right time that I was a tech person looking to figure out what I could do on climate. And so, you know, neither of us quite knew what we wanted, but it was a good fit. But the sky was kind of the limit when I joined. We ended up doing early stage venture investing in early stage startups on clean energy technology. We did our own internal R&D on concentrating solar power, the kind where you reflect a lot of sunlight onto a small thing and make it really hot and then use that to generate electricity. We did a lot of work around the operations of the company. There was already an enormous amount going on around energy efficiency. Google was really the leader in the data center tech world around energy efficiency. And and I and my team 
took that and then said, okay, but we still use a lot of energy. Where are we going to get that energy from? Can we get it from wind? Can we get it from solar? And ultimately figured out how to make that work. But at Facebook, the ambition was more around, we are a company with significant operations. We've got data centers, we've got offices. How do we minimize or eliminate the negative impact of of all of that? And so the focus from the get-go when I joined Facebook was very much on the operational piece with, I think, some interest in having a larger impact. Certainly, we wanted to lead by example, and we wanted to do things that would transform markets. So all the work we did on clean energy, buying clean energy, we put an enormous amount of effort, and Facebook is still doing this, to not just do it for ourselves, but to really work very openly with, with other companies to scale the number of companies that were buying clean energy and how much they were buying. But we weren't doing internal R&D or funding startups and so on on clean energy technology. So that was kind of a difference. And we were, I think, you know, Google is now much more engaged in really openly sharing what they were doing. But I'd say Facebook really took the lead on that in terms of being very open about, about sharing how they were going about doing power purchase agreements and so on. And we played probably the most significant role among companies. So certainly we were not the only, but I'd say we were probably the biggest driver of what ultimately became the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, which launched as a formal organization last year. For several years, it was a a loose coalition of initiatives run by several different NGOs. And now it's its own separate nonprofit. When you were wandering in the woods, so to speak, back in 2005, what was it that convinced you that sustainability was the right place for you to dig in, given that you're evaluating, it sounds like, many different paths to to help with climate change? I mean, I'll be honest, it really was a decision to take a job at Google where the focus was climate. And over time, that broadened somewhat to really be broader sustainability. There were several other teams at Google and other parts of the organization that were doing sustainability-related work. And as is true at many companies, they didn't all end up reporting to me whether it was very much a matrixed organization. So there's a team there, for example, in the what they call real estate and workplace services. I think that's still the name, RUS, R-E-W-S, that, that has been a leader on green buildings for years now. And it was a very small team when I joined. It's grown quite a bit. And my team worked fairly closely with them. And we tried to make sure that we had essentially a consistent, coherent strategy across the whole company. But my focus was primarily on the climate side of things. And at Facebook, the job was sustainability, but certainly energy and climate were the, when I joined, that was the dominant issue. And over time, we started to look at materials and supply chain and water and so on. But It seemed like that kind of job at a company when I joined Google was a way to have potentially really significant impact on the issue where I could contribute in potentially a big way. I talked to people at some NGOs to see, could I go to a place like NRDC or whatever? And I wasn't a lawyer. I wasn't a climate scientist. I wasn't going to go to a startup and design the next crazy, wonderful solar technology. And in some ways, I think I was really lucky that Google was looking for something that wasn't a huge stretch from what I, what I had been doing. It certainly required learning a lot. And organizationally, it involved a much more cross-functional influence role than 
to some extent I'd had in the past. But it wasn't a stretch the way, you know, I wasn't going to go do policy and law because I didn't have the background and so on. So, and I guess the other thing I'd say is that when I started this, corporate sustainability was, was barely a thing. Tech companies mostly did not have sustainability people. They had environment, health, and safety people who worried about if you talk about a company that, say, does semiconductor manufacturing, and they had to worry about toxic chemicals that they needed to handle properly on site and not actually just dump the waste out the back of the factory and so on. So they had people who dealt with that kind of compliance and risk management, but very few, if any, tech companies at that point had people who really were thinking about sustainability more broadly and going beyond compliance and thinking about climate. So the field kind of evolved and grew up around me in some ways. Uh-huh. So when you walked in, did the sustainability organization already exist in these companies? At Google, no. I guess there were two people, one in the, the real estate and workplace services group and one in what Google called its business operations group, which was sort of an internal consulting group who were doing green building related stuff. And they were one of them was working on the big solar installation that Google did in 2007 on its Mountain View campus. But that was it. You know, as I said, there were all, all the people who were designing servers and data centers, all of those engineers, at some level, they were doing sustainability work because they were very focused on energy efficiency as one of the, the most important things that they were striving for in their designs. But nobody was stepping back and looking at the broader context and what was happening with climate and how we could source our energy and things like that. And similarly, at Facebook, when I joined, there were a couple of people who had been hired. I think they'd been there part-time for about a year, and they were hired full-time shortly before I joined. So they formed the core of the team that I then led. But it was a new effort, essentially, when I joined. And so it was 2005 when you first got into this field, and now here we are in 2019. How are you feeling about corporate sustainability as a lever to help with climate change? And how has that changed since you first got into the field? I think companies have an enormous amount to contribute, and there's a lot that they have been doing in the progress over the last decade. I mean, when I joined Google, there was somebody who was putting solar on the, working on a project to put 1.6 megawatts of solar on the Mountain View campus, which at the time was the largest corporate solar installation, on-site solar installation, I think maybe in the world, certainly in the U.S., but we had no clean energy feeding our data centers, and we were building data centers at a rapid pace. So at that point, it was several tens of megawatts of data center capacity. And your listeners, some of them probably have an intuitive sense of what that means. But the typical American house uses, on average, a little bit over a kilowatt. So that's essentially the amount of energy consumed by tens of thousands of U.S. households. And that was back in 06. And it grew, and it's now hundreds of megawatts. It might well be gigawatts. I don't know the exact number for Google at this point. And Facebook is somewhat smaller today, but still enormous. So I joined Google early 2006, and it took us a little over four years before we did our first big clean energy purchase agreement. And that was because, in part, the costs needed to come down. It really it was too high a premium when I started. And we needed to learn about how energy markets worked. And we needed to get creative and finally figured out a contract structure 
that did not involve simply paying a premium from now until the end of time, but rather allowed us to take to sort of take advantage of the fact that wind and solar are essentially fixed cost resources. Once you install them, there's a small kind of operations and maintenance component, but there's no fuel. And so the cost of wind and solar, what you need to pay for it can be predicted. It can essentially be fixed from now until the end of a 20, 25 year contract. And previous ways for companies to buy clean energy basically meant you just paid extra every month for your energy to be able to say it was clean. And even as the price of typical grid energy went up, you would still be paying a premium. And we were able to work out a contract structure that is now quite standard, which is a variation of a power purchase agreement where the fact that the cost was fixed was something that we could take advantage of so that as, say, natural gas or coal or whatever maybe got more expensive, we were not affected by that. And that, plus the price of wind and solar coming down, was what allowed us to finally do our first deals. But since then, if you look at 2010, companies were doing maybe 100, 200 megawatts of new clean energy deals a year back then. Last year, I think, and this is in the US, last year it was almost seven gigawatts. So it's been a pretty steady and consistent exponential rise over the last nine, 10 years. And that I think is remarkable and it's had a real impact on energy markets and is something that I'm very proud of. And I'm proud of all the colleagues at both Google and Facebook and and at other companies who've really contributed to that. At the same time, emissions both globally and the US are still rising. We are on track with the current trajectory we're on puts us somewhere between three and eight degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century. And what really worries me about those kinds of ranges is that historically, if you look over the last decade, the 15 years that I've been in this space, when the UN and scientific bodies put out those kinds of projections of ranges of warming, reality has pretty much every time ended up at the upper end of the range. And eight degrees of warming, it will be absolutely catastrophic. Four degrees is probably catastrophic, but eight degrees is probably civilization threatening. And so we need to move a lot faster. And I think companies have a huge role to play in that, partly through the work they've been doing around cleaning up their own operations and encouraging or pressuring their suppliers to do the same in their operations. And investing in innovation to develop new technologies that will help us decarbonize things even faster and more cheaply in the future. But the thing that we really are missing that I think is needed to drive progress, essentially to scale what companies have been doing in their own operations to the entire economy, what we need is policy that will set the market rules or the guardrails that say, we're going to go down that path. And I think companies can help make that happen. Companies can advocate for policy, which mostly they tend not to do. But I think that's something that over the next couple of years, when I think about what is leadership in sustainability, especially in climate, going to look like, it's going to be around doing the stuff they've been doing, cleaning up their own operations, but also becoming strong 
consistent advocates for policies that will scale those same impacts to the broader economy. So what kind of policies do you have in mind? Well, one of the first is a price on carbon. That's the one people hear about a lot. There are a couple of bills in Congress, one of which has been, I think, at least partially designed by the Citizens Climate Lobby, which is an organization that is quite large and has been quite influential in promoting what hopefully someday could be bipartisan action in Washington, D.C. on climate. And there's some other bills and approaches that have been proposed by other groups, not all of them currently sitting on the floor of Congress. But a price on carbon, some way of, as the economists would say, internalizing the externality. Today, if you burn a fossil fuel and put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, or if you leak methane into the atmosphere or other greenhouse gases, there's no cost that you have to pay for doing that. Society pays that cost. And so economically, there's no economic incentive for you not to do that. So economists would say you need to, whatever activity you're doing, driving your car or cooking on your gas stove, part of the cost of that activity is related to the emissions you're generating. You should be paying that cost. And so that would be to internalize the externality in the economic system. And that's important. Cap and trade is one way of doing that. It sort of indirectly puts a price on CO2 and other greenhouse gas pollutants. But a direct fee or tax can do that as well. I think one of the places where we are a little bit stuck these days in the political debate is a lot of people think, okay, we need a price on carbon. And and if we do that, then we're done. And I don't think there is a single policy, as much as I would love to be able to say, and people often say, well, what's the one thing? I think the one thing that we should do this year is the thing that will make a big difference that we can pass. And honestly, that's not at the federal level in the US, that's at the state level in many states. And what is happening at the state level is less these days around putting a price on carbon and more around things like clean energy mandates. So passing a law that says that by date X, and there have been several of them in the last six to 12 months, by 2040 or 2045, all the electricity in the state will come from zero carbon sources. Or clean car mandates, either electric or zero emissions vehicles, which could include hydrogen, could include biofuels, perhaps, but basically analogous to the renewable portfolio standards that many states have had now for a number of years, 10 or 20 years, depending on the state, which have ratcheted up the requirements on the percentage of clean energy over time. Similarly, ratcheting down the allowable emissions from the transportation sector over time. And this is not about choosing winners or about big government spending. It's about regulating the outcome, saying that the science says we need to emit less. In fact, the science says we need to emit a lot less fairly quickly. And the market on its own is not getting there quickly enough. And smart regulation that sets the rules for the market would help us get there. It also would drive innovation. Because when you put constraints on people, it's amazing how they step up and get creative and innovate. And it would drive investment because people would have the certainty that if they invest in new technology or in scaling their manufacturing capacity or whatever, that there'll be a market for it. Whereas today, 
I think there's a lot of risk, which is one of the reasons we don't see as much investment as we need. So I'm going to try to paraphrase and parrot back to you what I think I've heard just to make sure that I'm understanding it and for the benefit of listeners as well. So it sounds like you had a successful career in technology. You were concerned about climate, which led you to corporate sustainability. And during your time at Google and Facebook, you found that, yes, corporate sustainability can have an impact, but but it takes a lot in terms of principles and values and long-term thinking beyond near-term self-interest of companies to have that kind of impact at the at the individual corporate level. And so in order to bring about that wider scale change, you need things like mandates that come from government. And given that things are polarized today at the federal level, the nearest term place that that can come is at the state and local level. And so driving policy at the state and local level and getting more companies to continue to do their part, both in terms of doing things internally and advocating for that policy can ultimately exert more and more pressure and show more and more successes to get things done at the federal level as well. How's that? Quite a bit quicker. <laughs> That's great. But from a content standpoint, did I get that right? Or- I don't think what companies have been doing up to now has been wrong. I think it's been amazing. And, you know, in some ways, that's maybe a bit of a humble brag that, I mean, I was part of that at a couple of major companies and part of helping other companies get there. I think that 10 years ago, it seemed like we had a kind of functioning ecosystem of companies beginning to act in their own operations, of investors investing in new clean technologies, of banks beginning to deploy money to actually build clean energy projects, big wind farms, solar farms, and so on, and of policymakers really beginning to take serious action. We had AB32, which was the Global Warming Act here in California in 2006, I believe it passed, which put cap and trade in place in California. And then Waxman-Markey was on the table in Washington, D.C. in 2009. And then 2010, Waxman-Markey failed and things got unbelievably polarized in Washington and nationally around climate. And so before 2010, I think there was somewhat less need for companies to be really vocal and active on the policy side because policy was beginning to move. And since then, it has become clear how stuck it is. And that's why, for me, I feel like the place where I can most make a difference in hopefully driving some change around climate action is in helping get companies to step up and speak up much more vigorously and much more consistently on climate policy. And as, as you said, as I was saying before, today, I think the opportunities for making progress there are much more in the U.S. at the state and local level than the federal level. But if we can make some progress there, it could lay the groundwork for and help shift public attitudes in a way that hopefully allows us to make progress at the federal level two years, three years, four years from now. And are you envisioning your efforts at the one-on-one, informal, hand-to-hand combat type of level or something that is more formalized and maybe more wider spread? Probably a combination, but definitely some of the latter. One of the things I've observed is that in the last several years, we have seen employees at a number of companies essentially use their voice to influence what the company is doing on complicated social issues. We certainly saw that on LGBT rights 
in a big way in the years leading up to the marriage equality decision in front of the Supreme Court in 2015, and then in some state-level fights around LGBT rights in Indiana and North Carolina and a few other places, the voices of employees had a huge impact on what companies did in terms of weighing in on those pretty contentious, polarized, messy political fights. And companies had a big impact. And we've seen in the last couple of years around guns and most recently on abortion and some other issues where companies have been moved to take particular stances in some cases because of who their primary demographic is for their customers, but in, I think in a lot of cases because of who their employees are and the demographic and the prevailing attitudes among the talent pool of young people that they're trying to hire over the next few years. And I think there's an opportunity, which I'm working on seeing how we can instigate a focused effort around to get particularly young people, but it could be anybody who cares, to use their power as an employee or a, if you're a college student, grad student, as a potential employee of a company to influence companies to actually be more active on climate policy. And I think there's a lot of evidence companies, young people have been pretty clear, I think, in a lot of surveys that they strongly prefer to work for a company that is more sustainable. And the bar for sustainability in terms of what's expected of companies has been primarily around, you should clean up your own operations. You should buy clean energy. You should clean up your fleet if you have a fleet of vehicles and so on. But what we need from companies now is that they help scale those same efforts much more broadly. And that means public policy. And I think that what we need to do is educate young people about that and change the expectations so that we're raising the bar for companies. What they've been doing is great and important and vital. And now what we need is something more. I think that's really interesting because one of the things I've been wrestling with is, I mean, I had a guest on several episodes ago, Sanchali from this company, Joro, that focuses on helping consumers to manage and improve their own carbon footprint. And I mean, something I've been struggling with is that if you look at the consumer standpoint, well, you can do that. And to some extent, it's a gateway drug because it opens your eyes, it gets you to care. But it, in itself, though, it's not going to have a big impact on the math. But to the extent that it can mobilize people and awaken them and get them to care, it could actually have some drag along second and third order effects that are very powerful. But I think what, what you're saying is essentially applying similar, but those same humans from an employee standpoint and both pushing their employer, but then getting the employer not just to do their part, but then to push for policy. Because ultimately, policy, you've come to the same conclusion that I'm starting to come to, which is that policy, it's not the only thing, but more than anything, it seems like the biggest lever that we have. However, just focusing on Washington isn't necessarily the best way to get that policy done. It's going to take a multi-pronged approach, including things like you're talking about right here, which I think is a really interesting angle. Yeah, it is definitely not an either or. It is a yes and everything. I mean, in terms of what companies should do, in terms of what individuals can do, and I think people should, in their personal life, do what they feel they can do, what they can afford. In some cases, the more sustainable thing will actually save you money. You put LED light bulbs in your house, and there's a slightly bigger upfront cost now. You will save a lot over the years in terms of energy costs. You buy an electric car, well, if you lease it, 
then you're paying by the month anyway, and you're going to pay a little more for the car per month, but you are going to pay a lot less in operating costs, both in fuel and in maintenance. So a lot of the personal choices that people make, the more sustainable one is now cheaper in many places. But we also, as you said, those personal choices, in the end, if everyone eliminated their carbon footprint, and that included every company, every individual, every company would be done. But the problem is that's not going to happen fast enough without some rules that drive it faster. Transportation is a great example where we made huge strides in the U.S. from the 70s to the early mid-80s on fuel efficiency for cars. And that was driven essentially by government regulation, what's called the CAFE standards, the fleet fuel economy standards for manufacturers. And then we froze those standards and the fuel economy of the American fleet didn't improve for decades. Cars got more powerful, so there was innovation, but the innovation went into allowing cars to get bigger and more powerful with the same fuel economy. And then in the last number of years, we've seen a lot of EVs. I mean, I'm sitting here in California. There are times when people out here could be forgiven for thinking that EVs are here and they've taken over because we see them all over. But that's partly because of attitudes in California. It is probably mostly because of the rules the state has put in place to mandate improvements in our transportation fleet around the state. And I think half the EV sales in the U.S. have been in California. And that's because of the rules that California has. So we need the innovation, we need the individual choices, but we also need the rules that will guide the innovation in the right way and and guide consumer choice in the right way. You've talked about the kind of things that you'd like to bring about and that this is an area where where you think you could be helpful. How far along are you in the how? <laughs> the answer to that depends on the week. I'd say this week I feel, last couple of weeks I was feeling like ah, things were sort of getting stalled. I think over the next couple of months, I hope that we will be in a position. I've got several people I'm working with and we're trying to figure out, is this a new organization? Is this something we can do in an existing organization? Can we staff it with volunteer college students primarily, or do we need to raise the money to hire permanent or full-time staff? Those are questions we're kind of in the middle of answering. And so I think a lot depends on what we figure out over the next three to four weeks in terms of can we sort of bootstrap things in Silicon Valley terms in a fast, agile way where we pilot some stuff and, and learn about what works and what doesn't and iterate from there rather than trying to build a big thing from the get-go? And I think we're now leaning toward, let's try bootstrapping. So my hope is by sometime in the fall, we will be out there engaging with college students and with employees at some corporations and giving them the the sort of focused ideas about what they should be pushing companies to do more of. And what about the, will the tactics be part of that as well? Giving them the tools to actually push them in ways that can be most effective? Yes. Short answer, yes. There are things that certainly employees can do internally. And we saw this with the Amazon employees recently. You may have seen I think you did, but maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get Emily to come on the show. Yeah, so that would be great. <laughs> and and she can give you a much more accurate and detailed story about what happened there. But fundamentally, 
a group of Amazon employees, I think a relatively small group, last year um, were not happy with the progress the company was making on climate and talked to you know the sustainability leaders and others and finally decided that they wanted to push harder. And they decided to file a shareholder resolution, which they could do because the company gives them stock and a bunch of them still held their stock. Um, and they did that, which essentially asked the company to disclose their carbon footprint publicly and make and disclose a plan for reducing it in line with what the science requires. And then they uh, went beyond that and wrote an open letter to the board, um, uh, which, uh, you know, the SEC limits what you can put in a shareholder resolution, um, which is something I didn't know until I started talking to the to Emily and the other Amazon employees. Um, and so they wrote a letter to the board, which was somewhat more expansive in terms of what they were asking the company to do. And it included be an advocate for policies that are aligned with the science, um, which I think is, is one of the really important things that, that 10 years ago, maybe, or five years ago, was not as important an ask of companies. But now I think it's, it's really vital. Um, but that's a great example of employees organizing. And I think that they had to learn a lot about um, essentially how to do, you know, call it labor organizing. They weren't making demands about wages and benefits and, and so on, but it, w it was organizing employees to um, uh, push their company to do something different than it's doing today. Um, and I, I think we all have a lot to learn from how they did that. Um, and and I'm, I'm hoping I can work with them to help scale what they did to other companies. So uh, first of all, I, I think that's really cool. And I'd love to uh, stay posted on, on your progress. Uh, but for anyone who's listening and also thinks that what you're doing is, is really cool, is there anything that, that, that we collectively can do or anything, any kinds of people that you want to hear from, any kinds of skill sets that you're looking for, any kinds of certain companies to be introduced to, or I don't know, like how, how can we help? You know, if there are people who are really interested in spending time on this, I would love to talk to them. Um, uh, and, and to some extent, I mean, you know, if we're going to actually um, connect with, activate, organize, whether it's people at a company or um, students at universities and graduate schools, um, uh, we will need to, we're going to need uh, technical skills around building the online tools or cobbling together the tools from things that are out there um, to allow them to sign up and to keep track of them and to, to get in touch with them and so on. Um, uh, another thing we're going to need is um, uh, the ability to track the key pieces of like legislation and regulation that are on the table in various jurisdictions and figure out uh, you know, which are the companies that have influence in those jurisdictions? There's no point in, you know, yelling at Apple or GM that they should be supporting some bill in a state they don't do business in or that they have a very small presence in. But if they've got hundreds or thousands of employees and tens or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of capital investment, they've got a real presence and stake in that state and real influence, and they should be using it. 
Um, but we're going to, you know, we're going to need to figure out. So in state, let's say Ohio were to consider a bill next year um, to mandate 100% clean energy by 2040 or 2050. Um, well, who are the biggest employers in Ohio, the top 20 or top 50 or top 100? And, um, uh, and, and which of the and, and which of them really have influence and which companies maybe that are slightly smaller in their presence there could have influence because they've got a presence, but they might be expanding it a lot in the next two years. Um, and so I think those are the kinds of things we're going to need, need to be able to do. And it's going to take people to track all this information and update it as the legislative calendar keeps changing in, in various places and so on. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I might have some people uh, that I can send your way offline and, and any other listeners that want to connect with Bill, just send me an email at info at myclimatejourney.co and uh, I can make sure that that information gets to Bill directly. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, I guess um, my, my, um, a couple other questions and then we can probably wrap up. But uh, one is just so... I mean, this is a piece that you've identified that can be high impact, and I think that's great, and I agree with you, and I'm excited to see this effort go forward. Uh, but this is such a big, complicated problem that there's many entry points such as this. We need a lot of help in a lot of places. So for listeners, I mean, as you've the journey you've gone on and the one I'm on now, they want to find the best fit for them. So given that, what advice would you have for people who are trying to navigate on their own climate journey? Um. I think, I mean, one of the things that I think is really important is that, that I've learned over my career is you need to do work that you find interesting in the moment, um, but you also need to do work that feels meaningful. And, and so for me, that is what over time has, I mean, not that, you know, I certainly found the work I was doing early in my career meaningful, but over time, as I got more aware of and concerned about uh, climate, uh, I, I felt compelled to really shift in a big way. I think there's a lot that people can do um, without making a, a, you know, the kind of really dramatic shift that I did. So if you're a, a marketing person and, um, and you work for a company that is, you know, selling interesting products, but they're not in, in, them, in and of themselves inherently sustainable, um, uh, you know, you, you could have a positive impact on the climate by getting your executives to speak out about climate more often by getting your government affairs team to actually engage on climate policy in the states where you manufacture or, or if you have stores or whatever. Um, so there are a lot of things, you know, wh one of the things that, that I've been talking to people about is, is, you know, the, the young people today, um, I think they're kind of freaked out about climate and, and, and I feel pretty freaked out. I think young people on, on average are even more freaked out. Um, uh, and um, they're looking, they, they'd like to do something positive for the climate, but you know, not everyone can have a, you know, can be in marketing or, or electrical engineering or whatever at a company like Tesla that is a hundred percent focused on, electrifying transportation, which is one of the things we need to do. So, it, you know, you, you, I think a lot of people don't, don't see how in my career could I do something positive for the climate. And that's where I think if, if we can educate people and organize them about the power they have as employees, wherever they work and whatever their company does, 
um, then my hope is that we can help everybody have essentially what, what I've been calling a climate positive career. Um, and where you, in your career, whatever your field is and whoever you work for, um, you are doing everything you can to personally and get your company, your organization, to do everything it can to, uh, you know, to help get us out of this mess or keep us from getting a lot deeper into it. That's the first I've heard that term, climate positive career, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick to that. I'm, I'm glad I invented it. <laughs> there you go. Just, get, you know, in a, in a three-point font, you can just cite me down at the bottom. That's fine. <laughs> um, last question, Bill. Just if you, if you had a, you know, if a stork showed up with $100 billion on your doorstep and said, you can have this money provided that you allocate it towards uh, helping with climate change and it needs to go towards the things that you think will be most the most impactful uses of this capital, uh, where would you put it and how would you allocate it? Um, the biggest problem we have today is the amount of money being thrown at this issue on the other side, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. um, if we can counter that, um, I think we can get policies in place that will then ensure that uh, investment shows up from the, you know, capital goes where there's money to be made. And so if someone handed me a hundred billion dollars or a trillion dollars or whatever. Um, uh, if, if I said, well, I'm going to invest it in this startup or the, you know, these hundreds of startups, given that amount of money. Um, uh, if in the end the market isn't there for what they're producing, um, then, uh, you know, that's a bad investment. But if we can change the market rules to drive the innovation and drive the cost down um, rapidly, then money will flow into the, those, those fields. Um, so I think the most important thing is to change the conversation nationally and globally and counter the influence that basically the fossil fuel companies have um, in, in the policy discussion that has been preventing us from making more progress. Um, and and any any thoughts on taking that one step more granular in terms of uh, you know who you'd actually give the money to? Oh wow! Um, well, that, the amount of money you're talking about, I'm not sure there's a single uh, place to go, or or even you know the top. I mean, that's there's a lot of money being spent on climate, but but you know, and I, I can I can create an LLC if you want. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I'll. I'd be, <laughs> Um, I mean, there are groups like the Sierra Club and NRDC and EDF and Union of Concerned Scientists and and 350.org and the Sunrise Movement. I mean, and I could go on and on. They are all doing really good, important work, and they could all use more money. Um, and I think if you said here we've got 100 million or 100 billion, I don't know what they do with 100 billion. I, I think that would be a whole different ballgame. Um, I think all, uh, any of them could absorb a big chunk or all of a hundred million, certainly. Um, but I, I think that, that I would deploy it, um, uh, really first think about where are the, the venues, the policy fights where, um, we're losing because of the massive amount of money that's being poured into it by the other side. And then what can we do either directly in a policy fight or more broadly? I mean, part of it is people hear all the time about, oh, it'll be too expensive. It, you know, all of the, the 
um, misinformation or obfuscation that comes from the other side, and they don't hear enough about the reality. And so getting trusted messengers, including business leaders, to be out there talking about the reality of the risks that we're facing and the opportunities that the, the solutions that are in front of us actually pose economically and otherwise, I think that that's a big part of it. So it, it's not, you know, it's not one organization. It's not one, uh, you know, media campaign. It's, it's, I think, would have to be pretty broad. And there's certainly organizations and company and, 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 you know, NGOs and others working on that, but they could use a lot more money. Great. Well, uh, and Bill, any, any, Thing I didn't ask that I should have, or any parting words for our listeners? Um, I mean, my guess is your listeners are, you know, they care about climate and they're worried about it and uh, they wonder what they can do. And so, as I said, you know, do everything you can personally, um, but uh, use that as, as a way to energize yourself to then engage really vigorously in how do we scale this across the entire economy. Um, and think about how to engage with your, your employer, assuming you have a job, um, uh, you know, because companies have enormous influence, um, pretty much everywhere, honestly, in the modern world, um, but certainly in the U.S. political system. And um, we need to use more of that influence for good. Well, great point to end on, Bill. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You've been a great guest. Thank you, Jason. Really pleasure talking to you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.